several months ago in chapel messages. I started in the book of Ephesians with chapter 1, verse 1, uh, with the intention of preaching all the way through the book of Ephesians over a series of chapel messages, as sporadic as those messages are, uh, it's going to take me a little while to get through it. So today, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 10, and I've titled the message, Is Salvation God's Work or Man's Work? Now you know the answer to that question, don't you? It's God's work. In our lives, and this passage certainly uh, tells us that. So, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. There are some things in life that are just difficult to explain. For example, as a parent, when your children get old enough, that they began to ask these kind of questions, where do babies come from? That can lead to some interesting conversations, can it? Especially depending on what age they are and how much information you need to give them at that point. And when a child comes to you with a question like that, it's obvious that you know the answer because, after all, you did bring them into the world. So you know quite a bit about this subject called the facts of life. And then you have to determine how are you going to take such a complex subject, a subject you do know a lot about, but put it down on a level where they can understand it and it will be appropriate for them to hear uh, the words you have to say. Well, there was a farmer who had a young son. He was still, still a child. But he started asking a lot of questions about uh, uh, some of these facts of life. And so the father knew that at least on a child's level, he needed to give him some kind of answers so he would get some correct information. So he took the son out to the barn to watch a mama cow give birth to a calf. And so the little boy stood there watching the entire process unfold. His eyes were as big as frisbees. His mouth was dropped wide open. And he's just watching in amazement as this cow gives birth to a calf. And after all was done, the father walked over to the little boy and said, Now, do you have any questions? The wide-eyed little boy said, Just one question, Daddy. How fast was that calf going when he ran into that cow. (laughs) Some of you are just now getting it, but uh, nonetheless. You know, it can be a confusing thing when you have to explain to someone the facts of life, but it can also be a confusing thing when you have to explain the facts of eternal life. 
Because the question then, it's not just how did that calf get inside of that cow or how did that baby get inside of that mother, but the question becomes more important, doesn't it? The question is, how does God get inside a person? How does a, a person get to heaven? And, you know, before you can get to heaven, heaven has to get into you, doesn't it? The Lord has to come into your life. And so the facts of eternal life are presented to us in these verses of Scripture this morning. And the facts of eternal life are explained around three concept in, concepts in this passage. Grace, faith, and works, and how those relate to one another in salvation. Now, John Gerstner was a longtime professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and he was a mentor of uh, R.C. Sproul. He mentored R.C. Sproul. And uh, he says about this text that this text has a built-in apologetic to it because no one but God would think up a religion like this. <laughs> and that's true. When you think about grace and you think about mercy, uh, you, you think about faith, you think about uh, where does works come in this kind of process, how does it all fit together? No one but God would design a process quite like this. So I ask you this question, is salvation God's work or is it man's work? And we're going to find out as we look at what may perhaps be the most definitive statement about salvation to be found anywhere in the Bible. And so in this passage, I want you to see this morning three important facts about salvation. Okay, three important facts about salvation. Let's look at them. Number one, salvation is initiated by grace. Salvation is initiated by grace. Now the first part of Ephesians 2.8, says, for by grace you have been saved. I love that word grace, don't you? And I love the song we sing, Amazing Grace. God's grace truly is amazing. Grace can be defined as the unmerited favor of God. And there is nothing that we can do to deserve the favor of God. We're not saved because we're smarter than others, because we're prettier than others, because we work harder than others, because we're more gifted than others. Our salvation is a work of God's amazing grace. And it has to be that way because we have nothing on our own to bring to God. Verse 9 of our text makes it clear that salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. When you get up to heaven someday, you're going to see and experience a lot of things when you get up there, but I'll tell you something you're not going to experience. You're not going to see one person in heaven bragging on what they did to get themselves to heaven. That you will not experience because, ladies and gentlemen, we can do nothing to save ourselves, nothing to get ourselves into heaven because Paul has made it clear earlier in the book of Ephesians that we are spiritually dead, we're spiritually destitute, we are spiritually depraved. 
Romans chapter 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64.6 says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, Paul said, For I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. And so if you happen to be one of those people who are depending upon your good works to get you into heaven, you need to understand just how impossible it is to get to heaven that way. Think of it like this. Imagine an airplane that is flying over the South Atlantic and it crashes over the waters of the South Atlantic. There are three people on board. They're a thousand miles from any mass of land anywhere, okay? Three people survive and they're there in the water trying to stay afloat. There are three people that survive. There's a great Olympic swimmer. There is a man who can swim some, and then there is a man who cannot swim at all. And so the Olympic swimming star decides that he's going to take charge of the situation, and he says, fellas, just follow me. I'm going to get us out of this mess. And so he jumps into the water swimming with powerful strokes as he tries to make his way to land. Well, after that, the other two jump in. Well, after about 30 seconds, the man who is a non-swimmer, he's already down to Davy Jones' locker. I mean, it's over and it's done for with him. The other guy who can swim some, he lasts about 30 minutes in the water, and then he goes down to a watery grave as well. But this Olympic swimmer, he keeps on swimming, and he keeps on swimming, and he swims for 25 minutes hours covering an impressive 50 miles. Well, that's terrific. That's impressive. Guess what? Only 475 more hours and he'll make it to land. Only 19 more days like that in the water, he'll make it to land if he doesn't slow down. You say, well, that's impossible. Absolutely, that's impossible. And that is the same situation that we're in if we're depending on our human paddling to get us into heaven. That's why we need a divine rescue. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, He is throwing to you today the life preserver called grace. And He wants you to take it and receive it into your life. The Bible says that God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. On Calvary's cross, the only one who never knew sin took our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's grace. Grace. Grace as an acrostic. God's riches at Christ's expense. And I hope you've experienced God's grace. You may think it's strange that here I am preaching a message that's really a salvation message to a group of students in a Bible college. You say, well, you think anybody's going to get saved here? If you're lost, it's a great place to get saved. <laughs> and guess what? We have students almost some every year 
who get saved right here in this Bible college, people who come in preparing for ministry, let me clarify something with you. If you're getting ready for ministry and a life of service for the Lord, here's step number one. Get saved. Meet Jesus. Let him transform your life. And I understand that's happened for the majority of you. But if there's any doubt, if there's any question in your mind whether you've experienced the grace of God, please, please take this seriously and take action upon it today. You see, there are three ways God can deal with sinful human beings. He can deal with us in justice. He can deal with us in mercy. He can deal with us in grace. Justice is when you get what you deserve. I don't want what I deserve, do you? I'd wake up in hell the next moment. I don't want what I deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. We deserve hell, but God rescues us from that. We, get what we, uh, we don't get what we do deserve. Mercy is a wonderful thing, but oh, grace Grace is when you do get what you don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve heaven. But yet we receive it because of God's act of grace toward us. And so the Apostle Paul makes it clear regarding this first fact about eternal life, this first fact about salvation. Salvation is initiated by grace. But then there's the second fact that I want us to look at this morning in our text. Salvation is appropriated by faith. Salvation is appropriated by faith. Now we continue on in verse 8, and it says, For by grace you are saved through faith. Through faith. Grace is God reaching His hand down to you. And faith is your hand reaching up to God to receive His grace. God reaches down to us in grace, and we reach up and receive His gift by faith. And by the way, let me just say that uh, faith, just like grace, is a gift of God in our lives too. It's a gift of God in our lives. And some people say, well, I just don't have faith. Well, the Bible begs to differ with you. Because Romans 12.3 says that every person has been dealt a measure of faith. Every person's been given a measure of faith. So what do you do with your faith? You do have faith, and even lost people have used it a lot of times in their lives. They used it as a child when they got on the school bus and had faith in the bus and the driver to get them to school. We have faith when we get sick. And we go to the doctor and we take the medicine that he or she prescribes for us. You had faith when you sat down at the table and and you had breakfast this morning. Faith appropriates. Faith takes something and makes it your own. It, It takes something for one's own use. God has offered unto you this morning a coat of grace. Will you take it? Will you put it on by faith and receive it as your very own? Not long ago, I heard a story about a police officer that stopped a vehicle in a routine traffic check. 
What he did not realize, though, is that this driver had just robbed a bank a few minutes before. And there beside of him on the seat was some of the money and, and also a revolver. And when the policeman walked up to the window, the driver pulled the handgun and shot the policeman squarely in the t chest. The impact threw the officer off his feet some uh, seven feet away where he landed. But the good news is this. In a few seconds, he got up and he began to dust himself off relatively unharmed. Why? Not because he was RoboCop but because he was wearing a bulletproof Kevlar vest that he had put on that morning as a part of his uniform. Later that same week, in another state, another officer stopped a vehicle, and he too was shot squarely in the chest, but that officer died immediately. He died because his bulletproof vest happened to be in the trunk of his patrol car. Now, what made the difference? Both had access to a Kevlar vest, but only one had appropriated it and made it his own and put it on his body. Folks, that's what faith does. It reaches out and it receives the gift of God of salvation. Have you done that? Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. You have the access. The question is, have you appropriated God's garment of grace in your life today? Faith also can be an acrostic. Forsaking all, I trust Him. I pray that you've done that. But there's a third part. There's a third fact about salvation that we see in this passage of Scripture, and it has to do with works. And people wonder, how does this process work? How does work come into this equation in, in some kind of a way? Well, here's how it fits. Salvation, salvation is initiated by grace, Salvation is appropriated by faith. And now, number three, salvation is demonstrated by works. Salvation is demonstrated by works. Look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in this verse, we see the role of works as it relates to salvation. Works are not the root of salvation. Works are the fruit of salvation. I like to say it like this. As an instrument of salvation, works are rejected. But as an indication of salvation, works are expected. We work for the Lord, not because we're trying to be saved. We work for the Lord because we are saved. We are saved. We're working out what God has already worked in us at the moment of our salvation. Verse 10 says we are His workmanship. 
In other words, God has done a work in us that immediately has caused us in the sight of God to become a new creation, and God is continuing to work in us, conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. But this, these, this word, workmanship, we're His workmanship, the New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce probably has the best translation of this that I've ever seen anywhere. He says that it means that we are His work of art. We are His masterpiece. <laughs> the next time you start feeling bad about yourself, just remember that you are God's masterpiece. God's doing a work in you. And He's not finished that work yet. He's obviously got a lot to do, doesn't He? Look at the person beside of you and say, Yep, God has a whole lot to do. I can see that. And then look in the mirror <laughs> and say the same thing. But the good news is God's still working. And He's growing. He's shaping. He's conforming us to the image of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a very gifted artist who specialized in making wooden carvings of Abraham Lincoln. And the detail and the etchings of these carvings were absolutely amazing. And someone asked him how he did it. And he replied, he said, I start with a block of wood and I chip and I carve away everything that doesn't look like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> well, God's doing the same thing with us when he's making us like his son, Jesus Christ. He's looking at us and saying, that doesn't look very much like Jesus. And he carves it away. He begins to chip it away. He is doing this work and, and the great news about it. Philippians 1.6 says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Earlier in these messages in Ephesians, I made the statement that what God starts, God finishes. And He does. You can count on that. And so, because God has done a work in you, He can now do a work through you. And that's why he says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now get this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a work for you to do, and he's been preparing you for it all along. Even when you were a little child, God was preparing you for this work. When you were in elementary school, and middle school, and high school, when you were playing sports, when you were building relationships, some of you who are along further in life, when, when you married your spouse, when you started having children, when you started working that secular job and, and, and you wondered why God had you in that situation doing what you were doing, you know what God was doing? He was preparing you for the very work that He wants you to do right now. And I want to commend you for something. Instead of giving God excuses, you've just said, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm coming to Fruitland. 
I, I'm going to get trained. I'm going to uh, understand more about the Bible. I'm going to learn how to lead people to Christ. I'm going to learn how to preach the Word of God. I, I'm going to learn theology. I'm, I'm going to learn how to care for the flock of God. All these things I'm going to learn how to do. I'm going to prepare myself. And I commend you for that. And you may be here, though, and you may be thinking, you know, I'm getting some years on me. Can God still use me? Or I've gone through all these experiences in my life. Can, can God still use me? I want you to think about some biblical characters and what they had going against them. Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was codependent. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair and all kinds of family problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha she worried a lot. Can any of you identify with Martha out there today? The Samaritan woman, she had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. Timothy was timid. Now that's quite a slew of biblical characters who had adversities and things that were going against them. But I want to tell you, even though you struggle with faults and failures and difficult situations, just like these people did, as God used them, God will also use you. If you'll just bring yourself to God today as you are and say, God, I want you to do your work in me. I'm weak. But the good news is the strength of God shows up the best in weak people. And so we all qualify. We come weekly before the Lord to make a strong commitment to Him. And Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God will cause you to desire to do His will and then God will give you the wherewithal to be able to do of His good pleasure. Because we are God's masterpieces, because we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, people should look at our lives, people should look at our works and say, that's a work of art. Because only God could do something like that. Only the Master could do a work in somebody's life quite like that. It's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5, 16 when he said that we are to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. They look at us and they realize there's no way we could be doing that. There's no way we could be accomplishing those things on our own, but God through us can, and He gets the glory. So, what are people seeing when they look at you? What are they seeing? The Apostle Paul said that we are living 
epistles, known and read by all men. I remember when I was a teenager, I heard a poem that stood out in my mind. Not many poems did, but this one did. It says, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by deeds that you do, by words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? In Scripture, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, as there is a summary being given of Jesus' life by Peter, the statement is made that Jesus was the man who went about doing good. Because we have received God's grace, because we've appropriated it by faith, we should be people who, like Jesus, are known as people who go about doing good. And so my challenge to you this morning is go thou and do likewise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that gives us the facts of eternal life. And Lord, I pray that wherever we are in our relationship with you this morning, I pray that you will help us to go deeper. I pray that you will help us to love you more. Help us to be more grateful for salvation. Help us, Father, to allow the work that you're doing in us to come to the surface and may your good works in us just overflow as we relate to the people around us. I pray that they will see the gospel in our lives. I pray that they will hear the gospel through our lips. I pray that in all that we do that we will bring much glory to the Lord Jesus Christ for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.